Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to the Lost in Science Summer Series. My name is Claire and this week on the show we've got two excellent stories, one interview, one story from the archives bringing some of the best of 2023 back into your ear holes in case you missed it and you've got to catch up on some of your science from last year over the summer. Who doesn't love a bit of a summer catch-up? So first up, we have an interview with Ashley Hood from last March. And Ashley's actually a geologist and a lecturer. And her research and her science pretty much just tells a story of what life on Earth looked like a really long time ago and how it came to be. So we're talking four billion years to half a billion years ago. And... um, Asking the questions around, you know, just those small questions, nothing too big, like how life has evolved and how we've managed to support life on Earth through all the ups and downs that the Earth has had. Um, So definitely stay tuned for Ashley. Uh, It's an amazing chat with her and she uh, talks a little bit about some of her field work as well, which is incredibly cool. Geologists always have the best fun. And bringing some avian science into your life. It's a, it's a bird brain story. And, and you might have seen these birds a lot over the summer. Maybe at the cricket. Maybe at the beach. Most likely at the beach. It is, of course, the humble seagull. And Stu's going to bring us a story from the archives about some new research into gull intelligence. That's right. The humble seagull they might be a lot smarter than we give them credit for. So stay tuned. On with the summer series. So have you ever wondered what Earth was like in the early days? What about when Earth was, you know, more than three and a half billion years ago? What was it like and how did it go about changing into the beautiful green and blue globe we all know and love? Geologist Dr. Ashley Hood is our guest today and can help us answer some of these questions with her research. She's lecturer in the School of Geography, Earth, Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Melbourne, as well as being an all-round rock star, pun intended. Ashley, welcome to Lost in Science. Thanks very much for having me. (laughs) So, Ashley, your research, it tells a story of life on Earth. It's being a geologist, it's a huge timescale that you're looking at. Can you tell us a bit about the types of questions that you ask in your research across this huge timescale? So that's right. Geology has really long timescales, perhaps beaten only by physics. But I, Not I that it's a competition, however. <laughs> no, not that it's a competition. Um, but, yeah, that's right. I look mainly at the early Earth, so, and I class that anywhere between about 4 billion and about a 
a billion or half a billion years ago, so really long time scales. And it's a really amazing that over this, say, four, four and a half billion years that we've had of the Earth, that we've managed to support life on Earth for all of this time. And so there's these huge fundamental questions to science, and these are things like what is the origin of life on Earth? Uh, how has life survived for four billion years or three oh. and a half billion years? Um, and through particularly how has it survived through intervals of climate change and environmental change um, so that our earth has become from this strange place that it used to be a sort of a hostile place to life in many ways. How has that life survived through these various changes in the planet to our beautiful earth that we have today that's that's thriving and green and beautiful oceans? So these questions that I look at are really, I think, fundamental questions in science about how we got here, basically. Not small questions. Not small, that's right. What is the origin of life and what is our purpose? <laughs> I've left the purpose one aside. And in your questions and your research, you look a lot at fossilised coral reefs um, around the world. Why is it important to look at these coral reefs and what do they tell us about um, life on Earth? That's right. So reefs like the Great Barrier Reef, for example, today are hotspots of biodiversity on our modern Earth. And as we go back through time, we can also look at ancient reefs to tell us a little bit about what's going on in ancient oceans. Uh, and so most of the evolution of life is actually in the oceans uh, and particularly in the shallow parts of the oceans. So reefs, as we, if we can track reefs through time and how they change and how the organisms that make up the reef change, we can track something about um, not only just evolution, but actually how that marine environment has changed as well. Uh, and so I look at um, mainly reefs from an era, era called the Neoproterozoic. That's around about, say, 800 or 600 million years ago, um, these reefs. And these are made of some unusual creatures that are, sort of take the place of corals, like in modern-day reefs, but they, mm. they're slightly different. We don't really know what they are. They're kind of unusual, perhaps microbial things or some maybe a very primitive uh, animal, we're not really sure. Um, but these reefs, again, are these hotspots of biodiversity in these really unusual oceans that characterise this time. So they're not oceans that we would typically think of as the oceans that, you know, we enjoy swimming in. That's right, yeah. So they're probably um, not the greatest place for humans to hang out. So <laughs> most, of, most of Earth's history actually has been, this early part in particular, has been really devoid of oxygen in the oceans and the atmosphere. And so way back, you know, three billion years ago, it's, you know, we think that the oceans were probably green with dissolved iron and the sky might have been orange, the atmosphere might have been made of methane, you know, and a lot of carbon dioxide. And gradually um, that ocean has changed and its atmospheres have changed. And um, But probably when these reefs were around about 650 or so million years ago, probably the oceans were still very much devoid of oxygen. Whether they were clear or murky, we don't really know, but but probably not the greatest place to swim. Not Certainly not as nice as the Great Barrier Reef today. This life, as we know it, um, was surviving in a totally oxygenless environment. That's right, exactly, yeah. And so one of the things I look at through Earth's history is I track this oxygen through time because it's intimately connected to the evolution of life. So, for example, things like animals that require oxygen to live and breathe they can't have evolved until there was enough oxygen in the atmosphere and oceans for them to live. And so this period of time that I look at the Neoproterozoic, where around about, say, 650, where these reefs are, 
is when we think some of the earliest animals might have evolved, although we don't really see them in the fossil record until a little bit later, um, until around about 550 or so in the Cambrian explosion. But this is around about the time that we think oxygen picked up and enabled animals to evolve. But it's it's really uncertain as to this that that transition in life, this complexity, kind of explosion of complexity in, in life. It's really uncertain what the environmental conditions were. And so part of my work tries to unravel that in sort of more detail than has been previously explored. Um, this is fascinating. I mean, how do you go about getting an understanding of what the atmospheric conditions or the oxygen concentration was like, you know, these millions and millions of years ago? What are you looking for in the rocks and these fossilised coral reefs? That's a good question. So um, so I guess we can look back at, at more recent times in Earth's history from things like the ice cores, but they don't extend back, you know, very far at all. They, and when we get to about this time period, like 600 million years ago, um, we really that we can really only look at the rocks to understand what was happening during this time. So these reefs that I'm talking about are not no longer in the water. We don't go diving or anything. These are these have been scraped by tectonic processes like the Himalayas. They've been scraped up and formed into mountain ranges, which have then eroded away. And so I go to places like the Flinders Ranges in Central Australia, where you walk across the hills, and it's like walking across a cross section of a beach you know, out into the ocean. So you oh, can just wow. come the hills and see all these ancient ancient beaches, ancient, you know, where the reef framework is, where the deep water is. Yeah, which is really great. And you can pick up some of the rocks you pick up, have little crystals preserved in, in them. And these crystals are like, in a sense, like salt. They precipitate out of seawater. And these form in different parts of the reef. And we can analyse these crystals with a laser uh, and determine the chemistry. And that can tell us about the chemistry of the water and how much oxygen might have been there. Wow. So these crystals are sort of give some sort of proxy understanding of what was in the water at the time. Yeah, that's exactly right. Proxy, yeah. And so we call them marine cements, and these ones are made of dolomite, which is like a kind of like limestone, but it's got magnesium in it. And and yeah, we we it's pretty it's pretty cool science. We put them in a laser, which I always think is very science. <laughs> <That> is <cool. laughs> I never I, I never thought of geologists using lasers. So, you know, I think <laughs> yeah. you just Blown a few minds around Australia now. <laughs> so, Ashley, what are some of the sort of biggest results and findings from the research that you've been doing with the coral reefs? So these ancient reefs around the Neoproterozoic around 600 million years ago had not been recognised before. And we originally thought that reefs very suddenly evolved with the evolution of animals. And so finding these reefs, and I should say I work obviously with a, with a large team of people, uh, including Malcolm Wallace at the University of Melbourne, and Finding these reefs has made um, a huge difference in our understanding of of how reef systems work, basically. But not only that, when we can analyse these little crystals, it's told us that these oceans were essentially devoid of oxygen, even at really shallow depths. And so this sets the scene, I guess, for the evolution of animals occurring in much lower oxygen conditions than perhaps we previously thought. Uh, If not in these exact reefs, then around about this time. Um, And so I think it's just... These results are really just showing that our history of our Earth is far more complex um, than we have thought originally, which always is the case in science. Now, one particularly interesting part of Earth's story is the ice ages that we've had, and we've had a couple of ice ages, haven't we? I've, I've always wondered how life survives through ice ages in extreme periods of cold. It's uh, So life um, manages to seem to find a way through all sorts of um, catastrophic environmental change. 
But that's right, there has been several really big ice ages in Earth's history. And the biggest one is, is sometimes called Snowball Earth. And this happened around about the same time as these reefs. It's around about, there's two events about 700 million and about 630 billion years ago. And these two events, um, some people think the Earth actually completely froze over, including all the oceans during this time. So a very, very severe ice age. Uh, and somehow, and this went for, you know, 50 million years, which is a very long time. That's like essentially from the dinosaurs until now. People have been questioning for ages how life survived through this. Uh, and there's different research going on. And, and part of our work um, suggests that perhaps some parts of the ice age weren't as cold as other parts. And maybe that's how you had areas of open ocean for things to things to survive. We had a student, uh, Max Lechty, who worked on some rocks from within the ice age sediments. And he found that there perhaps were little oases of oxygen on the edges of these ice sheets that life and, again, animals, potential animals that might have existed might have survived through. But really, at this point in time, it's maybe lucky that, that life wasn't as complex as it is today um, because they need they had a much more simple life mm-hmm. and could survive perhaps potentially better than, than today's creatures. Um, but we have had ice ages through other parts of Earth's history too, when we've had much more complex animals. And while it does cause extinction events, life is very clever and always finds a way to adapt. So that is one positive thing about the history of the Earth. You've done an incredible amount of field work in your research. It's taken you all around the globe. Can you tell us about some of your favourite field locations? Yeah, what you've found there and what you actually do when you're out on a field trip as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, actually, because I feel like geologists are often misunderstood. People think we often dig, like, mine for rocks, but that's not what we do. We, In my area of research, we go out to these often remote places, places where you don't have uh, pesky, you know, vegetation, forests and trees getting in the way of rocks. <laughs> <laughs> so really, really like deserts and mountains, basically. Yes, you like your life to be um, dead for millions and millions of years, eh? <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> Yeah, so I mainly go to three places. The most um, most commonly we go to the Central Australia, the Flinders Ranges, and that is an absolutely beautiful place um, to do fieldwork. It's got an amazing history, amazing cultural history. Everything about it is is really unique and beautiful, and um, there's heaps of amazing animals there and heaps of beautiful rocks. So that's one place. The other places we go to are Namibia in Africa, and that is also amazing. We've had many experiences camping in a river valley and having elephants surround us at night time or hear these stories about people being chased by lions and makes for exciting fieldwork. Very exciting. <laughs> and then most recently, just before the pandemic, we went to northwest Canada to the um, to the Yukon and up into the mountains there and we got dropped in by helicopter, which was very cool. And then we had to be also rescued by a helicopter because <laughs> we had a bear, a grizzly bear and her cub right next to our camp trying to get food. So <laughs> that was very exciting in its own right. Wow. Yeah. So definitely very remote places, absolutely beautiful scenery. And in each of these places, we look for these ancient reefs or ancient sort of shallow sea um, locations where the rocks preserve this history of seawater through time. It was like a reef, reef hunting, essentially. Right. So you're collecting the rocks while you're out there. You're hunting, collecting the rocks. Then you take them back into the lab and blow them up with lasers. Blow them up with lasers. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Ashley, I think I want to become a geologist. (laughs) Perfect. It is our International Women's Day special. Ashley, is there a um, woman in science or a group of women in science who um, have inspired you as a geologist? 
I think there's probably several different areas in which I've been inspired by women in science in general. So one aspect is um, a lady called Isabel Cookson, who really was, she was a paleobotanist. She looked at very early land plants and she was an amazing person and had an amazing career and sort of struggled, not struggled, but thrived basically uh, before her time in an era that was, was dominated by men and possibly quite difficult for women to do science. So she was really inspiring. But probably more recently, my my colleagues in the department and around the uni, around Australia, people that I've worked with in the US, and there's societies like WAMISA um, in Australia as well that really are doing amazing things for promoting women in science. Um, I should also mention the L'Oreal program um, as well, which does great things. So there's, I think now there's more and more amazing incentives and often these are pioneered by women and it's these people, I think, these everyday people that inspire me as well. Well, Ashley, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your incredible research, for giving us an insight into the history and the story of our earth. I do feel like I know her a little bit better now. So thank you again. Thank you. What are you onto? Anything of interest to the uh, scientific community? Together, you and I are going to make the greatest single contribution to science since the creation of fire. It's a big scientific experiment. What do I know? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. How smart are birds? Pretty smart. Ah, uh, it depends which bird, surely. I mean, bird brain is a misnomer, right? Well, you know, you, you, people might get called a bird brain if they do something less than intelligent, but that might not be entirely fair to our feathered friends. And, uh, you know, after all, we've got to remember that birds were once the apex predators in South America, so the potential for them to evolve into something to be afraid of is not entirely beyond them. Oh, hello, um, New ev- Zealand. Evolutionary bottlenecks aside... We, yep. we should be nice to the birds, I think. And I've also yep. seen the Alfred Hitchcock movie. <laughs> now, the average sparrow may not seem very bright, and we do know that some birds can be very intelligent. Uh, the corvids, like crows and ravens, uh, and of course parrots have shown behaviour that is incredibly intelligent by human standards. But, you know, that's probably why it impresses us so much, because we're the ones setting the standards, really. But the the humble seagull may not seem like a candidate to be included in ornithological intelligence testing. Uh, but again, that might just be because of our cultural conditioning. I'm looking at you, Pixar, with your very <laughs> unflattering portrait of seagulls in Finding Nemo, um, making them look a bit less than intelligent but to be fair look other creatures get a rough trot in animated anthropomorphical fantasy films too so seagulls are not alone in that respect but seagulls are very successful creatures they're found all over the world mostly mm. near the sea obviously it's not just a clever name but different uh, different species surely are all over the world that's right there are there are over 50 species of gulls in the family Laridae. They were all placed at one point in the genus Laris until genetic testing showed that that was not quite accurate and they've been split up again. So there's a number of 
uh, genera in the family Laridae. But yeah, you're right. There are there are 50 species, but they have speciated along coastlines and spread out all around the world. Now, the smallest gull is the little gull. Oh, again, oh, well, again with the, name, the clever names. It? Yeah, uh, 120 grams. That's a oh, tiny little, tiny little gull. That's quite and cute. And the largest is <gasps> the great black-backed gull, which is around 1.75 kilograms and around 75 centimeters long. And if that one comes for your chips, you <sighs> abandon chip. I think. And oh yeah, you 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 would, wouldn't you? Where would Australia's silver gulls and um, you know also maybe the Pacific gulls, which you see a lot in the um, south of Australia as well? Where where do they sit along the sort of scale? Uh, I mean, the silver gulls are probably right in the middle, I think, and the Pacific gulls are a bit larger. So, but not they're nothing like one point seven five kilos. Um, not that I've picked one up, I wouldn't get that close. I think. Your Pacific gull, especially not with a handful of chips anyway. <laughs> now, most gulls are what is known as generalist feeders or possibly more unkindly garbage guts. They will eat just about anything. Um, in the wild, that's usually fish, crustaceans, insects, earthworms, eggs, reptiles, amphibians, rodents, other birds, carrion, offal, Seeds, fruit, and more recently, rubbish. Right. Yeah. Um, That's the thing because they, they're they, associated with um with rubbish tips, aren't they? As well as cricket grounds. Oh, of course, yeah. I remember gulls at the tip. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and this is all to say they're not specialised or in any way precious about what they eat, and this may be one of the reasons they are so successful around the world that that they eat what is available to them. And this might not seem like a sign of intelligence, but the ability to adapt to local food sources in new territory is a hallmark of another apparently intelligent species, Homo sapiens, who also spread through every continent on the planet. And who also love chips. (laughs) Loved them so much they bought the company or something. Now, one of the common tests used for animal intelligence is a simple task of pulling a string to open a box containing a reward. Um, And many bird species do similar things in the environment to access rubbish bins and stuff like that. Anyway, uh, the corvids have been shown to be very adept at this. And some gulls from a Canadian colony were tested using a transparent box containing a piece of sausage. Why they chose a piece of sausage, anyone's guess, but it's obviously very tempting for an omnivore. It's got who knows what in it, which is what they eat. So probably makes sense. Now, 75% of the gulls attempted to open the box. And of those, 25% successfully got the food out, which might not seem like a lot, but it's only 1% less than common ravens. Wow. And, you know, they were, they were applauded for their intelligence when they sat the test, but the, the seagulls didn't get the, uh, didn't get the accolades, unfortunately. Um, But seagulls are very adaptable, and throughout the 20th century, they found enough habitat and food sources to move away from the the seaside that they're most often associated with, and into urban areas, which also grew over the last hundred or so years. Um, And seagulls might be described as opportunistic 
feeders, meaning they'll try pretty much any food source they find, uh, which also has another less flattering name, kleptoparasitism, which which basically means thieving parasites. And uh, this might be partly due to a study from 2019, which showed they are aware of human attention. <gasps> so they are more likely to steal food that's near people when the people are not looking at the gulls. Oh. So they kind of watch watch your face and see when you're looking at them, and when you look away, they'll steal your food. Um, so they are little thieving parasites, basically. <laughs> Kleptoparasitism. <laughs> yeah, kleptoparasitism. That is, that is oh. my um, number one word for this week. Thank you, Stu. Yeah, I'm going to use that. Word of the week. Um, but if they're willing to try anything, how do they know what is worth trying and what is just rubbish? And again, it may have a lot to do with their awareness of our behavior. So in a recent study published in Biology Letters, goals were observed by researchers in their reaction to carefully fixed in place colorful food packages, specifically chip packets, specifically packets of cheese and onion-flavoured chips, or crisps, I should say, because it's a UK study. Uh, these, these packets were blue, and salt and vinegar crisps in a green packet. So they basically stuck them to the ground and withdrew to a safe distance uh, on Brighton Beach to see what the gulls would do. And they looked into the camera to watch what they would do. And a few curious birds would come over and investigate the packets, possibly because they were brightly coloured and it was just some novel thing. So they came in, had a look at what it was. But when the researchers themselves were scoffing the same kind of chips out of a packet, almost half the birds there hopped over to check out the packets and 40% of the birds had a peck at the contents. Was this um, was this intentional that the researchers got the chips so they just got hungry during the research? Was that like part of the protocol? <laughs> it, 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 was, it was actually designed this okay. way. It wasn't just that they were down at Brighton Beach eating a packet of crisps, <sighs> which does sound like a lovely way to spend the day filming seagulls. No, it was, it was a designed experiment. So... Um, but of the 40% that had a peck of the contents, 95% of the birds who had a look looked in packets the same colour as the scientists were eating at the time. Ah. Ah. So basically, if they were eating from a blue packet, 95% of the birds would go for a blue packet. If they were eating from the green packet, 95% of the birds went for a green packet, Clever. which is... a pretty good indication they're aware of human eating habits and are more than willing to try some of what we're having but it did make me wonder it kind of seems like it would be pretty easy to trick these birds into eating things if you wanted them to and i was wondering is that where we got the word gullible
And that's all we have time for on this episode of Lost in Science, our summer series. Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nations and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the help of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsight at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook or X, formerly known as Twitter, or just tune in again next week when Stu, Claire, Kat and Chris get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.